Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. For those of you sitting here this morning, the most important question for you to really answer is if you are right with God. And not just for those of you sitting here, really, it's a question for every human being. Are you in right standing with God? You know, people all over the world, they have uh, different ideas of what it means to be in right standing with God. You know, if, if you go around the street and just uh, ask the uh, average Joe, Hey, you think you'll be in right standing with God when you stand before God? And generally, the, the response would be, yeah, I think so, because I'm, you know, I generally live a good life, and so therefore I'm in, I should be in right standing with God. Then there are others who would say, no, 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 you need to do more than that. And they say, well, uh, no, you need to be very philanthropic, You know, give of all your riches to the poor and things like that. And then you will do some big deed like that and then you will be in right standing with God. There are others who will say that, no, you need to go to a, uh, you know, go on some kind of pilgrimage to a certain specific place and do certain things and perhaps then only you will be in right standing with God. And then there are others who think that, oh, uh, you know, and even if you're not in right standing with God after you die, you might go to a place, but, you know, we can still, the others can pray and do other things for you to somehow get you into heaven. There are all kinds of answers that people will give To know, uh, to, to answer this question of to be, how, how are you going to be in right standing with God? The Bible gives only one answer. There's only one reason by which you can be in right standing with God. And that is through Jesus Christ and what he's done. The only reason. It is no work of man. It is nothing that man ever does. But it is purely who Jesus is and what he has done on the cross merits anyone right standing with God. This morning we're going to look at a passage as we continue on in the life of faith of Abram. In 15, 1 through 6. It's a passage that ultimately shows that Abram is a man who is in right standing with God. And it is this passage, and particularly verse 6, that the Apostle Paul and even James will pick up on and say, This what, what it says here that Abram believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness, that is saving faith. That is what it means to be in right standing with God. 
This morning, I've titled the sermon as Abram Justified by Faith. And I've got four points here. In verse 15, we'll look at God's promise. In verses two, uh, 15, verse 1, uh, in verses 2 and 3, we'll look at Abram's struggle. And then we'll look at uh, God's reassurance, that's in verses 4 and 5, and ultimately Abram's faith in verse 6. And really, even for those of us who understand that we are in right standing with God, I trust that when we uh, look through this passage, one thing also becomes clear that as we continue to trust God and in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will help us as believers to persevere through the different trials of life. Because we understand God is enough and the good news of Jesus Christ is enough and it will get us through even through uh, the trials of our life. So firstly, let's look at God's promise in verse 15 and ver- uh, chapter 15 and verse 1. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. After these things. You know, you could rightly translate that as sometime later. You know, sometime has passed after the events of Genesis 14. Sometime has passed after Abram's defeated the four powerful Mesopotamian kings, Kedileoma and his allies, and he has rescued Lot. And some time has passed after he has refused the spoils of the war from the king of Sodom. And we saw that last week. And really, if you just pan it out even more to just get a sense of time, if you look at Genesis 12, 4, we saw there that Abram was 75 years old when God promised things to Abram and he left Haran. So remember, he was in Ur of Chaldeans, then he came to Haran. So some time has already passed since he's put his trust in the Lord. But it says, at least when he left Haran, Abram was 75 years old. And then if you turn to Genesis 16 and verse 16, it says that Abram is 86 years old when he has Ishmael. So that's what? A span of 11 years between when he left Haran and when he's in the land of Canaan and he has Ishmael. So we're talking, you know, years are going past. So we're not talking just a few days here and there. So sometime in this span of 11 years is where we find Abram in Genesis 15 and 1. Something like uh, possibly 7 to 10 years have passed since, uh, since he's left Haran and maybe even and longer since he's begun to put his faith in the Lord. And so... And some time has passed since his defeat of the big kings and since he's refused the spoils from Sodom. 
And now Abram's thinking about God's promises. God's promises that came to him, where God's promise to restore the world to himself. And he's even thinking of God's promise of offspring, like the dust of the earth, uh, so shall your offspring be. So Abram's got some clue. This has something to do with that offspring in Genesis 3.15. Somehow my line, my offspring, is also connected to that offspring there. And as he's thinking through, through this, he's, he's burdened. And as he's thinking through God's promises and God's plan of redemption, this plan to reverse the curse of sin and death and restore the world to himself, he becomes burdened. Because as he's looking around, and as the years are passing and time is passing, at this point, you know, Abram's a fairly famous person. The, the one little guy who defeated all the prominent kings. So his name is pretty famous right now in the land of Canaan. But he also is aware that he also has a lot of enemies. I mean, think about it. The, the Mesopotamian uh, powerful kings that he defeated. Sure, he's defeated them, but now as time is passing by, maybe they're gathering bigger troops now to come and attack him. And then on top of that, he's refused the spoils from the king of Sodom, saying, no, I don't want any association with this unrighteous king, with this worldly king. No, this is going to dishonor my Lord. And so he's made an enemy there too. So he, he's looking around, and that's all he's seeing at this point. He's seeing trouble, and he's seeing he's, he's growing old, and he's thinking of God's promises, and time is passing by. And he's thinking, how long, O oh Lord, before your promises come to pass? How long, O oh Lord, before your plan of re- redemption comes into play? How long, O Lord, before that promised seed will come and crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse of sin and death? And so now his heart is troubled and his heart is fearful almost. Because if he's thinking, okay, and I'm somehow connected to this uh, and something through me, but hey, I'm growing old and this is all I see around me. And it is when Abram is in this state, it says that the word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision. You know, I love that. We saw last week that, you know, this is God most high, the preeminent one, the the possessor of heaven and earth, the one who holds the heavens and the earth in his hands. That mighty God, here he knows that Abram's troubled, that his heart is troubled. And here he's coming to minister to Abram. I love that, through his word in a vision. And and this is, 
you know, and we should never forget this as well, you know, as we think of God as being so powerful and so mighty and we're going through difficulties, remember, no, this is also a personal God. And he will minister to us through his word. And as we spend time with him and commune with him, he will speak to us through his word. And so it says that the word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision. Now, interestingly here, just as a side note, this phrase, the word of the Lord came, this is a very typical way of uh, the revelation of God, God's word given to a prophet. Because if you read through the prophetic books, you will see this again and again and again. The word of the Lord came to this prophet. The word of the Lord came to that prophet. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and Isaiah and Hosea and so on. Uh, and what's interesting is this. It is pointing to the fact that Abram's actually a prophet. In fact, if you turn to, in Genesis 27, 20 verse 7, Abram is actually called a prophet. And, and here's the thing. This is the first time this phrase is used. And here's a quick thing about as we understand God's revelation and as we understand uh, how the Bible works and how God has revealed himself. See, God reveals himself uh, and his revelations are given progressively from Genesis through to Revelation. So he gives this much of revelation, then a bit more, then a bit more, then a bit more, then a bit more. And what that means is as various authors of scripture wrote down their inspired word or inspired revelation from God, they were building on what was already previously revealed. So they would build on previous historical events and they would point to that and say, remember that happened there or they would allude to it and then they would uh, say something with regards to that. And or otherwise the you know, the authors would point to some theology that previous revelation has said. Remember what that prophet said or what was said in the law or what was said there and they build on that and they and add on to whatever God has revealed in a new way. But also to notice is that that they, these authors of the Bible, they would also build on terms and phrases previously used based on previous revelation, and they would pick up those things that they already knew to say, hey, that's the same thing that's going on here. So that's what's happened. When the later prophets came, and, the, uh, and, and they were thinking of, okay, how do I describe God's revelation coming to me? They'd be like, oh, I, I know the Torah. I know Genesis. I know Abram. I know where it said there that, that phrase, the word of the Lord came and he was a prophetic figure. And so that's what they then start using. The word of the Lord came. The same prophets used the same thing that was used 
of Abram because they're picking up on what they knew before. And you know, another thing to say about this is it's even hinting, or it's even just a little flicker that, hey, Abram is a prophetic figure. Now we saw in Genesis 14 that Abram was a kingly figure. And it was pointing to the fact that the, that the ultimate seed is a kingly figure. And then we saw this mysterious person, Melchizedek. Oh, it's, and we saw that, hey, this seed is not just a king, but he's also a priest. And now it's building on the fact, it's just a little flicker, just a tiny flicker. Hey, this coming seed is not just a king, not just a priest, but he's also a prophet. Three officers coming together. One day that's what this ultimate seed is going to be. And it's just a little flicker of that. Okay, so the word of the Lord comes to Abram. In a vision. And this is to really encourage Abram and to build him up. And God says, Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be great. You know, God gives Abram two reasons to not fear. First, he says, I'm your shield, Abram. I mean, when you think of a shield, what comes to, you know, just think of what a shield is. It's, it's this round thing that you put in front of you to protect yourself from the enemy. You know, to protect yourself from the, the spears and the arrows and the, and the swords uh, of the enemy. And God is saying to Abram, I am your shield. I am your protection. I will protect you. You know, I'm such a strong shield, nothing's going to get past me. Nothing's going to penetrate through to me and come to you. He's saying, hey, nobody can break through the shield and harm you. And even the promises that are given to you, nobody's going to be able to take it away from you. It will come to pass and I will guard you and I will protect you. And you know, this is a promise not for uh, just Abram. This is a promise for all of God's children. Psalm 18.2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Now, when we think of God being our shield, our protector, our, uh, our security, now, it doesn't mean that, therefore, we won't fall into sin. In fact, we'll see even Abram will fall into sin. It doesn't mean that you won't, go, uh, you, you won't have trials. It doesn't mean that uh, you won't go through difficult circumstances or you can't be part of really uh, bad car accidents and something terrible can happen to you or that you can't have some really bad illness or, or whatever. It doesn't mean any of that. But it does mean this, that God, if you're a child of God, God will protect you in an eternal sense. 
It does mean that as his children, God will protect us from the evil one. It does mean that our faith and our salvation and every promise there is in Christ Jesus will be secure. It does mean that he will never leave us because, and he will guard us and he will shield us in the palm of his hand and nobody will be able to snatch us away from his hand. That we are secure in him. Now specifically to Abram, very specifically to Abram, it also meant that nobody could harm Abram even physically. Because God had given a specific promise to Abram, if you remember, those who curse you, I will curse. In other words, those who harm you, they're going to answer to me and things won't go for them because God had a special plan for Abram and the plan of redemption. So God is essentially saying, Abram, without me, you have every reason to fear Yeah, you take me out of the picture and you look at everything around you uh, and you think of, oh, this is reality. Yes, you have every reason to fear. But I'm your shield. I'm your protector. So don't fear. Now God gives a second reason to not fear. He says, your reward shall be very great. Now there are two ways to translate this and you'll see that those differences in the different translations. You can either take it as how the ESV translates it as your reward shall be very great or it can be translated as your very great reward. So no shall be. In other words, that would mean that God himself would be Abram's great reward. Now, I don't think either way it makes much of a difference because God does reward Abram and bless Abram greatly. And, then, and we know that the ultimate blessing, the ultimate uh, reward, the ultimate gift is the gift of God himself as he is in relationship with Abram and everything that comes out of that. So I don't think it changes the meaning either way. And if you remember from last week, so Abram said no to all the spoils of Sodom. He said, no, I don't want to associate with you. I don't want to associate with this ungodliness, this, with this worldliness. No, this is going to dishonor my Lord. And, and he said, no, I will have nothing to do with you, not even take a sandal strap, because he wanted to honor the Lord. And he said, I, I, I will trust in God alone, as he was encouraged by Melchizedek. And now God says to Abram, your reward, your blessing, oh, it's going to be way greater than anything that the kings of this world can offer you. Your blessing will be greater than you can imagine. I will protect you. I'm with you and for you and provide for you every need and your blessings will be great, so don't fear. You know, as I was reading this bit and I was meditating on it, You know, the words of Romans 8 came to mind where it says, if God is for you, who can be against you? That he's the one who holds you in the palm of his hands. He's the one who protects you and you're in this uh, relationship with him. 
And nothing, famine, death, life, nothing can snatch you away from him. As a child of God, I I wonder when you go through trials, when you go through difficulties, you know, this, this is meant to be such a comfort for us. Because I think sometimes we sort of think, okay, God is the mighty God. And sure, I'm his child, but you know, yeah, I'm going through these trials, I'm going through these struggles, and I've stuffed up again, and I'm coming to God, and God's like, oh, okay, I guess I have to do something for you. It, it's sort of like the posture of God, sometimes, we might not say it verbally, but at least in our experience, we think, okay, God is just busy doing all these things, and okay, here's Benoit here, stuffed up again, or going through these struggles and fears, and okay, I guess I'll do something. No, that's not God's posture toward his children at all. No, his posture is like this. I am for you, child of God. I am for you. I am with you. I will protect you. Every blessing is there in Jesus Christ. I will do only good for you. I will never harm you. I will never ruin you. I'm not here to destroy you. That posture is always like this. And it's the, you know, so often... Yet we get this sense of when we come to God, oh, God is busy doing all these things and now he's kind of like this irritated man. He's like, okay, I guess I have to do something for you and I'll do something good for you. No, that's not how God is. That's not his posture toward his children. It is always like this. I'm for you, I'm your shield and your reward will be great as every blessing will come to you in and through Jesus. So that's God's promise that he gave to Abram as Abram was being fearful. Now look, let, let's look at Abram's response or his struggle in verses 2 and 3. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So if you notice here, uh, Abram's response, first he addresses God as Lord God. This is not Yahweh Elohim that we've seen before. This is Yahweh Adonai. Yahweh is the the personal name of God that the children of God specifically use in relationship with him. And Adonai, that's just a general name for Lord, Master, King, the, the supreme authority. So Abram saying to, uh, saying to the Lord, uh, Yahweh, You're you're my master. You're my sovereign master and king. You know, I I, I recognize my place before you and I submit to you. But you keep saying that you will will bless me. But, But what will you give me for I continue childless? 
I mean, his question is, Lord, I, I don't understand you giving me this great reward and blessing that you keep promising. What's the point of it if I can't pass it on to the next generation? Like, how is your plan of redemption going to come to pass? See, what Abram is doing here, it's not something arrogant. He's not shaking his fist at God and saying, you need to keep your promises, God. No, that's not what's going on here at all. No, he's coming before God with a humble heart. He's recognizing that God is the master, God is the sovereign one, and he is a servant. But he's being honest with God as he's struggling to understand God's promises. We know in, as we saw in Genesis 11.30, that Sarai, his wife, is barren. And now she's past childbearing age. And even Abram, he's getting quite old to have a child. So really, it's humanly impossible for Abram and his wife to have a child. And, and, and again, I want you to understand this clearly. And for Abram, this is not just about having a baby for himself. No, it's, it's more than that. It's, it's about God's plans and purposes and promises being fulfilled. It's a zeal for that. And because Abram knows that without an heir... You can't have a nation. And without a nation, you're not going to have inhabitants for the land. And then how then, without a nation in a land, how is the blessings going to go out to the rest of the nations? And how is all this connected to that promised seed that was talked about, who would reverse the curse of sin and death from Genesis 3.15? So really what Abram's doing is he's lamenting before God. And this is precisely because he has has faith in God and God's promises. He wants to see God's promises uh, fulfilled. See, because if he didn't have faith, he wouldn't care about God's promises. He wouldn't care about God's plan. He was a wealthy man, well known by so so many people. He could have done deals with the Canaanite kings, even if they're ungodly, and could have taken care of himself. No, this is a zeal for God's plans and purposes. He wants to see them fulfilled. And now he's wrestling with the gap that he sees between what is reality as he sees around him and what God has promised. The two don't match up. God, you promise grand things, but when I look around, it looks like something else. And he's struggling with that. And so he humbly brings that before the Lord. You know, it's like in the lament psalms, right? When the psalmists, they they cling on to the Lord and they say, how long, O Lord, how long? How long before you accomplish your purposes and your plans? Or or, or it's like Habakkuk, as we looked uh, a couple of years ago. You know, Habakkuk couldn't understand uh, God's ways, uh, you know, why to deal with the sin of the people of Judah. He would send the Babylonians, who were more wicked, to judge the people of Judah for their sin. It's like, Lord, I don't understand. 
And, and, and for two chapters, he wrestled with God. And again, there we saw like Abram, he, he wasn't putting his fist up and saying, I demand an answer from you, God. Why would you do something like this? Answer me. That, no, that, that's not what uh, Habakkuk did. No, he again comes humbly and he clings to God. He wrestles with God as a way to try and process everything and still honor God. He's clinging on to God and saying, God, I don't understand. I'm wrestling with this. Now, this is something that we should all take to heart as children of God. When we wrestle between what is reality, what we see around us, and what God has promised, and the two don't match up, understand this. God doesn't expect you to sort of bite your lip and pull up your bootstraps and oh, just keep moving on. No, he doesn't expect that. No, he expects us to bring our cares and concerns to him. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your burdens on him. Why? For he cares for you. Or as the hymn writer says, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Why? All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So it is good for us to humbly, uh, you know, as we are going through struggles, to bring our struggles uh, to God and saying, God, this is the reality around me, but this is what you have promised. And that's what Abram's doing here. And as Abram knows that having an heir is vital is so connected to the promises of God. So he's like, okay, Lord, I don't understand all these things. But then he brings up the name of a man named Eliezer, a member of his household. Now, Eliezer is probably a chief servant, you know, serving in the role of a son in the house, you know, who's basically taking care of the whole house. Because if you think of Lot, his nephew, he's totally out of the picture. Why? Because he's, uh, you know, even though he's a believer, he's gone to Sodom. He's, you know, the, the sin city uh, of that time. And he's happy to be there. Even though once he was in this trial and he was taken and being captive in that war, he's still happily gone back to that place. So Lot is ruled out. So all he's got now is Eliezer. And in fact, if you think of the name Eliezer, the name Eli means my God. And Ezer, from where you get Ezra as well, it means help. So Eliezer means my God is help. So it, it could even mean that this man, Eliezer, who was a, the, the chief servant or the chief steward of the house, that he may have also been a believer who trusted in the God of Abram. But Eliezer is not a Hebrew. He's not from the line of Eber. Remember uh, Table of Nations? He's from Damascus. He's outside that line. But Abram's saying, hey, that's the only person that I've got now to be my heir. So he's saying, so is that it, God? 
I mean, that's who I'm thinking of my heir. And Abram's wrestling through all this. Now in response, God's word comes to Abram a second time to to reassure him. And I think seeing God's response here is also telling. Because if you think of people who've tried to lift their fist against God, and if that's what Abram was actually doing, you know, God has a very different response. You just have to think of the book of Job. You know, as Job struggled through it, towards the end, he was coming to that stage of, I demand an answer. You need to answer the why question. And we all know how then God came. He came in a whirlwind and just kind of smashed Job around with saying, I'm not going to answer you. I'm just going to tell you who I am. But he was rebuking him. And yet we see a different response here. God comes, God's word comes to Abram to reassure him, verses 4 and 5. Verse 4. It says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. God makes it very clear to Abram. No, Abram, that's not the plan. Eliezer, he will not be your heir. It's not going to be some, you know, legally adopted son of yours. No, Abram, it's going to be your own biological son. The one from your own loins, he is going to be your heir. And the blessing will be passed down to him. And my plan of redemption will move forward through him. So God is reassuring him and even making it explicitly clear to Abram that while it seems impossible humanly, Abram, you're still going to have a biological son. See, God has not revealed this to Abram as yet. He's just said, you're going to have offspring, you're going to have offspring. Now specifically God is saying, no, your own son, your very own son, your very own biological son will be your heir. And then God does something else. Verse 5. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. So you can imagine, Abram's in his tent uh, and it's nighttime. God brings him out. There's no street lights. There's no uh, lights even reflecting from the city or whatever. It's, it's just pitch black. And God tells Abram, look up at the sky. And against that black canvas of the night sky, what a scene it would have been for Abram as he saw the entire night sky just filled with these twinkling lights. Just everywhere in that night sky. And then God tells him, Abram, count them if you can. I mean, he, he obviously can't. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's just so numerous. And then God says, so shall your offspring be. 
Your descendants are going to be just as numerous. So what the Lord is promising here is two things. On the one side, he's saying, I'm going to give you one specific descendant, offspring, seed, your very own seed, but he's also promising then multiple descendants. It's interesting, you know, as we move in the pages of Scripture and as we trace the usage of the star, the authors sort of build on it as well. In Numbers 24, 17, Moses again has written the first five books. He says, a star will rise from the house of Jacob. Who is that? The ultimate seed of Abram. And then we come to the New Testament and we see that Jesus is referred to as the morning star in, in Revelation 22 and in Second Peter. The, the brightest star that announces the arrival of the coming day, the one who will dispel the night. And it's also interesting, this, this idea of shining stars, it's also then used of God's people, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. You know, it's used in the book of Daniel and a few others. And, and one New Testament passage I'm sure most of you would, have, would be aware of is in Philippians 2.15. Where, where Christians are called to shine as stars. The word there is actually stars in the world. In that dark and twisted world. What is it alluding to as well? Offspring of Abram. Shining stars, offspring of Abram. And when Christians strive out to live their salvation in fear and trembling, you know, they will shine in this dark world. And you know who Christians will be pointing to then? As they shine in this dark world, as they live out the gospel? The ultimate star, the bright morning star, Jesus Christ himself. The one who will shatter all darkness one day. So when Abram told God that he didn't have a child, God replied, hey, not only will you have a biological child in your old age from your own loins, but your family tree too is going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And I think that day as Abram saw, looked up at the sky, you know, he would have been mesmerized not just by the, you know, overwhelmed in a good way, not just by the sheer number of stars in the sky as it twinkled in the sky. He would have realized something of the beauty and the glory of the promise of the seed. He knows this is how all somehow connected to that ultimate seed as well. And he would have seen something. It would have left some sort of an indelible, vivid mark on his mind of what God was promising, even though he may not have known all the details. So if you're a Christian, let me say this. 
the next time you look at the night sky and you see the stars, remember God's glorious promise to Abram. And remember to give thanks to God because you were counted as one of them. That God was pleased to call you out and for you to be one of Abram's spiritual descendants. And God's faithfulness as you see in the sky, you are an example of God's faithfulness. And give praise to God for that as you look up at the starry sky. And beyond that, as you strive to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ in this sin-stricken dark world, recognize that when you do that, you are pointing to the ultimate seed of Abram, Jesus Christ. Now what, what reassurance this would have been for Abram as he realized, yeah, this is God most high, the God who made the stars. The one who created the stars is now promising me that my family tree will be like these stars that he himself has created. And now we come to our last point, Abram's faith in verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now this is now the author, Moses, you know, after this account, he's, he's giving his summary statement of Abram's faith. Yes, Abram took God at his word in what he had promised. You know, Romans 4.18 says this, that in hope, talking about Abram, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. In hope, Abram believed against hope. What does that mean? It just means that Abram believed in what appeared to be what was unbelievable. That Abram understood that what looked impossible for man is possible for God. And so Abram turned away from his inadequacies and weaknesses and all that he saw around him and he believed in God because he knew God can make all this possible. But I want you to understand that this is not the beginning of Abram's faith. Abram believed the Lord. That could be translated as... In fact, even more so as Abram was believing the Lord. Meaning that he had believed and now he's continuing to believe in the Lord in the present. So in the past, he had done this and he's continuing to do this. So in that sense, he has believed the Lord and he's continuing to do so. So this is not Abram's conversion experience. In fact, if you turn to Hebrews 11, 8 and 9, it tells us that by faith, Abram obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. 
He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went out to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So that's where Abram's faith started. When God called him out of Babylonia, from the Ur of Chaldeans, And then in faith, Abram journeyed on. He's had some ups and downs. And then at the start of Genesis 15, we see him wrestling with God. But when God's word comes to him, Abram continues to believe. He believed what God had said and continues to believe the Lord. Now this verse is particularly used by Paul and James to talk about what saving faith is. So I just want to just quickly in the last few minutes just focus on that. Now the word here for believe, it has the idea of confidently trusting in and relying upon. So there's a confidence and there's a leaning on or a resting on or a relying on. So when you think of believing, so there's obviously some content, some subject matter you're believing in, but it's not just a mental ascent uh, and that's it, and you believe it to be true, but it's that whatever you're believing on, you're now relying on it, and it impacts the way you live your life. Now let me just use an example. For example, if you found yourself in a building on fire, And there's a big strong man standing outside. You're maybe on the second story or something like that. And you're at the window. And this man says, listen, uh, I'm very experienced with this. I'm from the fire station. And you just jump. I can hold you. I've done this millions of times. You can do this. Now, the mental ascent believing aspect would be you're standing there, the building's on fire, and you're like, okay, yeah, I get what he's saying. I understand what he's saying. But would you say he, uh, you know, you're actually believing? No, that's not actually believing. For you to actually believe, not just give, give a mental head nod, is for you to then actually say, yeah, no, I believe in this wholeheartedly. I have a confidence in this. I have a confidence in this man. So I'm going to actually jump because I know for certain this man will catch me. So that's the idea of uh, believing. That you are confidently trusting and relying on that person leaning on that person and what he has said. And when you think of the content of Abram's belief, see, it's not just a general belief in God's promise here. No, it's a belief and his concern and everything is with regards to the plan of God, with regards to the plan of redemption, and he knows it's all tied to what? The seed, the offspring. His belief is in the promise of the seed, even though, even though he doesn't know all the details. His faith was actually in the seed who would come to fulfill God's promises. Or in other words, Abram was believing in the gospel. Sure, he didn't know Jesus' name at that time. 
But he fully trusted God and he was relying on the fact that God would send his ultimate seed somehow through all this and that plan of redemption would take place. Abram fully trusted and relied on God to bring his seed as the centerpiece of the plan of redemption. So what you see here is Abram's growing in his faith. He's getting more clarity about the seed of the promise and about God's plan of redemption. And somehow it's all connected to him having an actual heir as well. It says there, verse 6, And Abram believed God, and he counted it as righteous. Abram believed God, and he counted it as righteous. You know, I just, I just want to say this about faith. You know, sometimes people have this idea that faith is some sort of work of man. You know, that somehow, okay, there's all these people, but I have faith, and that makes me, uh, gives you know, that's the merit by which uh, this righteousness of God is bestowed on me. As though it's some sort of human effort. Let me just quickly take you to the passage we read this morning and just give some comments and we'll end there. Romans chapter 4 and verses 2 through 4. Uh, 2 through 5, sorry. For if Abram was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now think about this. If faith was a work, a human work, then what God is saying is, then this righteousness, if it was all according to works, then it wouldn't be a gift. It would be a wage. But let me ask you, for those of you who are also Christians, do any of you have perfect faith? Any one of you? Do you have perfect faith? No. None of us have perfect faith. Our faith is like this. Yes, it grows, but it's always like this. It's never perfect. And if faith was a human work, and if it was faith was a human work and that's why you're getting righteousness, then you need to have perfect faith to have perfect righteousness. Because if you don't have perfect righteousness, you're not going to be in right standing with God. So what is he saying? This is faith apart from works. See, faith is not a human work. It's something that God does. Ephesians 2 talks about it, that it is a gift of God. It is when God opens your eyes and gives you new life and then you respond in faith. That is God's work. And so faith simply is a means. 
It's not a work. It's not a merit. It's simply a means by which then the righteousness of God is accounted to the believer. And this word uh, accounted, it's just an accounting term. Now most of you would know this, that it's this idea of crediting. We know credit cards and you credit this way and credit that way. So it's the idea of crediting. Now there's no explanation here. How is Abram who's a sinner, and we know that later on too, his faith will be like this. He doesn't have a perfect faith. Even here, he's struggling with things. And even later, his faith will be like this. He will also sin. Then how is it that this sinner who has struggling faith, though growing faith, is counted as righteous in right standing with God? Well, there's not much explanation given here other than God, you know, God through Moses uh, saying, no, Abram's declared righteous. He's got saving faith. But as we move on in Scripture, and particularly in the New Testament, it becomes clear that those who trust in Jesus, Jesus came into this world as a man, God himself who came in the form of a man and lived a perfectly righteous life, a life according to the perfect standard. That's what righteousness, righteous living means. Righteousness means living according to the perfect standard. He lived according to the perfect standard of God and then he died on the cross to pay the price for sinful people like you and me. And you know what happened on the cross? There was a crediting, there was an economical transaction that took, took place for, to help us understand. The sinner's sinfulness, the sinner's unrighteousness, not living according to the standard of God, that was credited to Jesus' account. It was accounted to Jesus. And Jesus was counted as though he was the sinner as though he lived your life and my life, that sinful life, that unrighteous life, and God judged him and poured his wrath on him. Because you see, God is a God who is righteous. He lives according to his perfect standard. So when he judges, he has to judge according to that right standard. He can't overlook sin. So he judged Jesus that way for sinners like you and me, And for those who trust in Jesus, you know what happened to the sinner? That righteous life, living perfectly according to God's standard, that was credited, that was accounted to the sinner's life. That's what saving faith is. That's what makes a person in right standing with God. It is not works. It's not even the amount of faith. I want you to get this, brother, sister. If you're struggling with assurance of salvation, if you truly are a believer, let me tell you, it is not the strength of your faith. It's not even that your faith keeps going like this and that's why you're doubting. No, because your focus seems to be still on yourself. Understand that saving faith, this, this faith is simply a means. Saving faith is when somebody is depending and relying on Jesus and his work and work alone. It is by faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone, and nothing else. 
That is what saving faith is. And what we see here from this text is that Abram is exhibiting that. Not a perfect faith, but a faith that trusts in God's promises and specifically in the seed promise. And he's able to then coast on through the trials in his life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. Oh, Father, we, we recognize that we are so unrighteous, so sinful to the core. And as the psalmist says, if you were to count our, uh, count our sins, who would stand? None of us would stand in your presence. And yet we thank you for our Lord Jesus. Thank you that he died on our behalf. Thank you that he was counted as though he lived our unrighteous, sinful life. And because of that, because he was judged, because he was punished, because he died for our sins, paying the price for our sins, his righteous life is now accounted to us, is credited to us. And so we are seen as though we have lived Jesus' life and we are accepted in your sight. Oh, Father, we thank you for this glorious fact, and we pray that every day we would cling on to this, not to the measure of faith that we have, not thinking about our wavering faith, but that our, our foundation, our everything is anchored in who Jesus is and what he has done. And so as we go through the trials and the uh, trials and the struggles of this life, let Jesus alone be our anchor. And we pray that as a result, as we trust in him, that Christ in us, that bright morning star that is in us, as Second Peter says, would shine forth through us, through the darkness of this world, and it would further point to our great Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray this morning. Amen.